Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. Hello folks and welcome to another episode of Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. Got a very special show on tap for you today, particularly for those of you who are professional wrestling fans and an all-wrestling episode of Four Quarters today. Momentarily, I'll have a podcast shout-out after that. Instead of This Day in Sports History, we'll have This Day in Wrestling History, followed by a conversation I had with Reese Kelly Graham. Reese works for the Dallas Morning News, but like me, he's a massive professional wrestling fan, so he'll join me for Talking Smack with J-Mac, and he'll stick around for a round of Ranky Panky that's all about pro wrestling as we rank our top five pro wrestlers who we believe are equally as good at playing a face-slash-good-guy character as well as a heel-slash-bad-guy character. That's coming up later, but right now let's get to the podcast shout-out. So, for today's podcast shout-out, I'd like to draw some attention to a podcast available at podzilla1985.com. This is a network of podcasts about several different topics. podcast I want to center on today is Pro Wrestling Unscripted. Now, this is a podcast that comes out like us on Wednesdays. Each Wednesday a new podcast is released. I listened to a recent one. I believe it was their June 3rd episode. They had some great discussion. The podcast was just over an hour long, but about 40 minutes of that podcast were spent talking about African-American professional wrestlers that the guys liked, both past and present. So it was a really great discussion they had and even drew my attention to some guys I hadn't really even heard of. One big name was Ice Train, who I had to look up, and they talked about his physical appearance and how jacked he was, and they were absolutely right, so I looked him up. He was actually part of a tag team called Fire and Ice with Scott Norton in uh, WCW. So that's a really cool podcast. Now, there is some language, but it's not like they're using F-words every other word or anything, but I do want to draw attention that there are some expletives, and I try to make sure that I'm letting you know that ahead of time, but like I said, it's not overbearing, it's not every other word, but anyway, the guys there at Pro Wrestling Unscripted do a great job. Like I said, they're available at podzilla1985.com, or if you want to listen to some other podcasts there. This podcast is also available on some other platforms, but you can go check that out, podzilla1985.com, Pro Wrestling Unscripted. That said, let's get into the next segment of our show. It's time for This Day in Wrestling History. This week, for the first time, This Day in Sports History becomes This Day in Wrestling History. We start on June 10th. 1983, when Harley Race defeated Ric Flair 2-1 in a best 2 out of 3 falls match to win the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. The match was held in St. Louis, Missouri, and Race's win ended Flair's 631-day title reign that had begun in September 1981. Race is one of six men to have been inducted into the WWE, NWA, WCW, Professional Wrestling, and Wrestling Observer Halls of Fame. Race won nine world titles in his career, including eight in NWA, and passed away at age 76 last year. We move ahead to June 10, 1994, when the virtuosa Deanna Peraza was born. Deanna previously wrestled for such promotions as Ring of Honor, TNA, Stardom, and NXT, and was among the over 20 employees released from WWE on April 15th of this year. Deanna recently signed with Impact Wrestling and made her on-screen debut in a vignette on May 26th. After another vignette last week, Deanna made her in-ring debut for Impact Wrestling last night. A New Jersey native, Perrazzo has been wrestling since 2013 and is now part of a stacked knockouts division in Impact. 
On June 10th, 1996, Kevin Nash debuted in World Championship Wrestling on an episode of Monday Nitro as Scott Hall's, quote, big surprise. Hall himself had debuted two weeks earlier after he and Nash departed what was then WWF and is now WWE to take more money in WCW. Formerly known as Razor Ramon and Diesel, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash would become known as the Outsiders in WCW and would join with Hulk Hogan the following month to form the New World Order faction. Although the NWO was initially successful and remains one of the greatest factions of all time, the WCW version of the group eventually grew too large and produced several divisions, most notably during the period pitting the NWO Hollywood against NWO Wolfpack. Last December, it was announced that the NWO would be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, although the induction ceremony has not yet been held due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Finally, we finish with an event that took place on June 10th, 2002, when Stone Cold Steve Austin walked out on WWE just hours before Monday Night Raw was set to air from Atlanta, Georgia. It was the second time Austin had walked out in a matter of months, with this walkout coming due to his unhappiness with the proposed storyline that would have seen him face Brock Lesnar on that night's episode of Raw in a King of the Ring qualifying match. A match Austin did not feel had been built enough to be given away on free TV. Thus, a show that would have been largely built around Austin had to be rewritten, which resulted in Vince McMahon facing Ric Flair that night in a no-holds-barred match for full control of World Wrestling Entertainment. McMahon owned SmackDown at the time, while Flair was the on-screen owner of Raw. Other matches on Raw that night included the NWO, this being the WWE's version of NWO, Booker T, Big Show, and X-Pac versus Sean Stasiak, Spike Dudley, and Tommy Dreamer in a six-man tag team match. It also featured William Regal versus Bradshaw in a European title match, Molly Holly versus Trish Stratus, Rob Van Dam versus Eddie Guerrero, and Brock Lesnar versus Bubba Ray Dudley, who replaced Stone Cold in the King of the Ring qualifier. Austin wouldn't return to WWE until the following February, about eight months after the incident. Well, that does it for this day in wrestling history. Let's head into my conversation with Reese Kelly Graham of the Dallas Morning News, beginning with Talking Smack with J-Mac. Thanks, Reese, for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate you uh, coming on. Yeah, sure, man. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. First of all, I know I want to talk about you being from Atlanta, and then you talked about living in South Carolina for a time, and now currently working for the Dallas Morning News. Talk about how you ended up going from Atlanta to South Carolina, now to Dallas. Yeah, absolutely. My journey is kind of interesting and, and definitely not traditional in the sense of how most start down a, a path to into a journalism career. I would say that, you know, most aspiring journalists, you know, probably start out at their high school newspaper or they have a mentor that would sort of kind of get them into it. Uh, for me, it wasn't like that at all. When I was in high school, I had the great privilege of going to a arts boarding school in Greenville, South Carolina, called the South Carolina Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities. And while I was at the South Carolina Governor's School, I was an acting major. It was one of five or six art areas that you could choose from at the time. I was heavily involved in theater and, and acting through my adolescence and when I was a child. So that's just what I ended up studying while I was there. And I had aspirations. Of, I mean, it was it's one of those prestigious uh, high school acting programs where many of the graduates go on to some of the best collegiate acting programs in the country or acting conservatories and, you know, end up doing stage work in New York or being on television in Los Angeles or Atlanta or New York or any of the major television markets. So that's, that was an original aspiration of mine. And the, the chair of my acting department at the governor's school I got his master's in acting from SMU, which is in Dallas. Uh, so that's one of the many 
uh, acting programs that I applied to and auditioned for and was accepted to. And just the finances and everything worked out that got me to Dallas. And from there, I knew that I wanted to go to an actual university rather than a conservatory so I could double major in another field. And journalism was what I chose. I had always had a vested interest in in sports and I liked the idea of covering sports. So that's kind of the path that I went down. And it just happened to be a, a very exciting time for athletics at SMU, which, you know, for the previous 15 or 20 years really hadn't had a, a ton of athletic success. You know, the football program at the time when I was in school was was still pretty abysmal. And if you know anything about the history of SMU football, you know why. But, um, you know, the basketball program, the men's basketball program was top 25 at the time, had just entered a new conference. Uh, We had one of the best men's and women's soccer programs in the nation, which continues to flourish. And and then, of course, after I I graduated is when the football program there at SMU finally decides to get it together. But yeah, that's that's basically a general overview of how I got to Dallas and uh, how I stopped pursuing a career in theater and the performing arts. And now I'm full time into covering sports and professional wrestling for one of the top circulating newspapers in the country. And I'm, I'm very blessed for the opportunities that have come my way. That's cool. My wife does some theater on the side for a little community theater. So I've kind of gained a lot of appreciation for all the work that goes into theater and, and doing things like that. I did want to talk. I know I've seen you mention somewhere about maybe your background in acting kind of led you to being a big pro wrestling fan. Talk about the genesis of when you started watching pro wrestling and some of your early memories of that. Sure. Well, I've always I've always explained it to people as maybe my my love of theater inspired my love of professional wrestling. The older I get and the more retrospect I have, the more I realize that maybe it was my love of professional wrestling that inspired my love for the theater. I've been watching professional wrestling, you know, since I was a kid. And of course, you know, it, professional wrestling is, is an interesting medium. And then of course, you, your your fandom can kind of come in waves depending on, you know, what the product is like, your age, your experience, your maturity, what the exact product is at the time. You know, I've been watching pro wrestling off and on since, you know, I would say five, six, seven years old. And I I started paying attention more regularly uh, from about the time that WCW folded into when, you know, WWE started entering, you know, the Ruthless Aggression era and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So I definitely obviously because of my age, wasn't around for the golden years or anything like that. But I've been around people who have, you know, very knowledgeable of that era. And of course, I've gone back and I've watched a tremendous amount of film because product back then was was phenomenal and in a very different way for the reasons why the product is good today. So I've definitely done my research of the product when I wasn't around to watch it. And I consider myself a student of the industry. I find it very fascinating. And it's a pleasure to learn more about the industry as an outsider uh, through the writing that I do. Yeah. Um, talk about what promotions you currently follow and, and which one maybe has your favorite product right now. Hmm, okay. That's, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I'll be able to answer favorite product, but yeah, I, I pay attention to right now, primarily right now, AEW, because it's obviously still active during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, that being said, I watch, you know, the major shows for all of the American promotions. So that would be uh, WWE, TNA Impact, or not TNA anymore, just Impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really love a lot of the stuff that MLW has put out in the past year. Uh, and then I'm also, a, you know, a huge fan and a huge consumer of New Japan. I'm one of the crazy people that will stay up to 3 a.m. to watch Wrestle Kingdom live rather than watching it on tape delay. So, uh, and I uh, pay a lot of uh, attention to the independent circuits, especially here in Texas. There's a lot of great young talent and a lot of talent that isn't from Texas coming in to work to some of these promotions because they do a really good job and it's fun I don't, I don't mind watching wrestling in a ballroom I think it's interesting and on that level it's um it's a fun watch I'm with you I think AEW is the one that I really enjoy watching right now and recently I know they held their double or nothing pay-per-view and a big story coming out of that was the uh, stadium stampede match what were your thoughts on that match in particular 
Well, the stadium stampede, you know, it's what that's going to be one of those polarizing matches where you either really loved it or you really hated it. You know, as a consumer of the product where I'm able to objectively look at things and, and take the product for what it is, I thought it was a fun watch. I can tell you this, the stadium stampede match in my eyes, we can talk about it critically to the end of time but I can say for me that I was very entertained watching it I watched the pay-per-view with my dad my dad's gotten back into watching pro wrestling ever since Dynamite debuted on TNT back in October Uh, my dad was very entertained by it and sure at the end of the day would I rather have a you know a a five-star wrestling classic you know between Kenny Omega or one of the New Japan guys sure I mean I'm very much into impactful hard-hitting strong style wrestling or classic southern old-school wrestling like we saw from Double or Nothing in 2019 between Cody and Dustin I'm very much all into the idea of legitimate wrestling contest that I can take seriously over some of the comedy and cinematic angles that have been made necessary by the pandemic era that we're living in. That being said, I found the stadium stampede extraordinarily entertaining. I thought it showcased all the people that were involved in that match. I thought it showcased their strengths very well. And at the end of the day, the stadium stampede is a reminder that there's always going to be this element of silliness in professional wrestling. Even the most serious of pro wrestling conflicts has this inherent playful aspect to it. And I feel that it's unfair to to criticize stadium stampede in the sense that oh there's too much comedy or it's clear they didn't take anything seriously while filming this and while creating this match and i feel like doing so ignores one of the the primary elements that makes all of pro wrestling whether it's cinematic or not special so yeah that's where i stand on that match i thought it was thoroughly entertaining would I have preferred to see the Inner Circle and the Elite battle in the War Games blood and gut style dual ring, dual steel cage setup that they had booked for the Newark show, which got canceled? Absolutely, I probably would have preferred that match. But when you're Tony Khan and when you're AEW and when you're a new promotion that is looking to get noticed and do something unique and you have full access to an NFL stadium, which is right next to the venue where you were taping your pay-per-view, it only makes sense to do something creative like that and I thought they did a very good job and taking it for what it is I was very entertained yeah I can't really argue with any of the points you made and I really was entertained by that match as well it's not something cinematically or comedy wrestling that you want to see all the time but I think we're kind of in the perfect time period as a country for matches like that right now yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the stadium stampede was a sparkling example of, of something that AEW has done very well throughout its evolution. And that's provide a buffet of styles and a buffet of, or a, a, you know, a, a bunch of different types of talent. One of the appeals of AEW is that it provides variety. You know, you're going to get those more cinematic comedy style angles. You're going to get strong style. You're going to get old school Southern. You're going to get death matches. You're going to get Lucha Libre. You're going to get Joshi. There's all of these different styles and it helps prevent the product from feeling homogenous and all the same. I'm all for variety in my wrestling. I feel like that's important it helps it just helps every it prevents everything from feeling the same and i feel like that the the stadium stampede was a hallmark and and something that they can do moving forward more granted in limited doses anything is special uh, when it's limited and nuanced and when it, it happens in the right moments and i feel like the stadium stampede was successful because it happened in this moment. If, if Double or Nothing would have been, like, say, for instance, if Double or Nothing this year initially would have been planned for Daly's Place and, and not the MGM Grand in, in Las Vegas, if, if there would have been fans in the stands in Daly's Place, you know, maybe the stadium stampede makes a lot less sense. But because it happened in a no-fan environment where they had access to the stadium and it just made sense to do it there, that's what made it special. And that's what put it in a context for me and the other viewers who liked it so they were able to enjoy it. Yeah, I think uh, one of the criticisms sometimes I have with WWE is they'll take something and uh, run it into the ground. And so I think as long as AEW 
doesn't do that, they're going to be okay. I would agree with you in the sense that we have exam- we, we now have cinematic examples from both companies. I was very much a fan of the cinematic work that the WWE did around WrestleMania. Yep. I thought a lot of it, I mean, I thought all of it was very well done, even though, you know, the bone, the boneyard match between AJ Styles and the undertaker and the firefly Funhouse match that we saw in night two between Cena and, and the fiend Bray Wyatt, you know, neither of those resembled wrestling matches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were very much their own thing. And it was kind of one of those moments where it was fun to see WWE take themselves a little less seriously and see what they could do when they went all in on trying something unique and something that breaks the mold. That's what made those matches fun. The fact that they were so surprising is what made them fun. And then, of course, you have what they did with Money in the Bank, which was kind of, in a way, WWE doubling down on the silliness that had made their previous cinematic matches successful. Uh, the difference with Money in the Bank is that we had a precedent for that match, right? You know, Money in the Bank, has, it's been some of the, the top ladder matches in, in company history have come out of the Money in the Bank format. So I can understand where, where some people might have been let down by the cinematic nature of Money in the Bank because that devolved into illogical elevator shenanigans and food fights and surprise appearances and, and guys getting bunny ears quotes thrown off buildings. You know, imagine how special Money in the Bank this year could have been if they would have taken the match down the same path of seriousness that the Stadium Stampede was taking. Now, don't get me wrong, Stadium Stampede was was equally silly, but at least it resembled the conventions and and the framing of a traditional match. Whereas, as my, can you I mean, just 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 answer the question? Would you have paid to see a legitimate? Money in the Bank match at WWE headquarters where all of the competitors had free reign or, or at least, you know, a, a, some sort of linear free reign to do whatever they wanted and actually have something that resembled a, a legitimate Money in the Bank match on top of a building. Would you have paid to see that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, w- it was a great idea. It, it was a great idea that then fell short on the execution because they really doubled down into the silliness factor after the praise that they got for their first two cinematic matches. Meanwhile, sure, in AEW, you have Matt Hardy changing his essence in the Jaguars pool of reincarnation, I guess. And you had Hager and Hangman Page fighting in a bar. And you had the 100 yards of suplexes that you know, the Young Bucks gave to Sammy Guevara and all that silly stuff. But, you know, at least there was a ring. At least there were some high spots. There was a lot more that resembled, you know, what we would have seen in a traditional match. So I feel like that's how I would describe WWE falling short in comparison to the success that AEW found with the Stampede match. Right. I wanted to move to another topic in AEW. I know uh, Mike Tyson has uh, done some things with them here recently and uh, had the altercation with the inner circle and Chris Jericho. For me, you know, given the backstory, especially from WWE between the two and, and the character that Chris Jericho has, I think he's the perfect foil for someone like Mike Tyson right now. Uh, what are your thoughts on this angle so far? Well, I think maybe the most interesting aspect about the, the, the Tyson-Jericho angle so far is that they don't really know where they're going to go with it. The assumption is that maybe you get some sort of uh, wrestling contest or maybe a boxing match at the all-out pay-per-view uh, Labor Day weekend in, in Chicago, which hopefully at that point maybe has some fans in it. We'll have to see. But, I mean, that that's an interesting aspect to it is that the company really doesn't know where they're going to go. But I think that's okay because we have to remember what all of this is about. The Tyson-Jericho angle, even though I'm sure there's a, there's a contingent of the hardcore wrestling fans who are going to enjoy it, this isn't about a wrestling angle per se. It's about a new company entering their second year of business, getting more casual eyes on the product. If we're talking in the context of the Wednesday Night Wars, or if people want to call them the Wednesday Night Wars, you know, both AEW and WWE NXT, they've largely held on to their core fan base, even during the pandemic, 
which ranges weekly from about 550,000 to 750,000 viewers. A lot of people have been quick to point out how far AEW has fallen in that time from the 900,000 that they were averaging earlier in the year and how far they've fallen from, I believe, the the 1.4 million that they had watched their first three weeks back in October. But, you know, a large portion of their audience was casual fans or folks who were checking back into wrestling for the first time in a while after only really having a WWE to contend with in the market. So so this is the, the whole Jericho and Tyson angle. It, it's a smart way of trying to recapture some of the casual audience that maybe they lost since the pandemic took hold or, or engage with new viewers who are excited to see Mike Tyson do something in any capacity. I mean, it, it's a... It's a mutually beneficial scenario for both Mike Tyson and AEW. AEW wants more of a casual audience, and they also want more mainstream headlines. The Tyson angle, both at Double or Nothing and the the confrontation the following week on Dynamite, was very successful at that. They had almost every major sports publication talking about AEW on Thursday morning, you know, whether it was ESPN or Yahoo Sports or Bleacher Report or Sports Illustrated. They had a a huge spike in their Google Trends metric. You know, the rating that came out the next day had AEW back over 800,000, even though the Tyson segment actually lost them about 30 to 40,000 viewers during that final 15 minutes of the show. So, So the Tyson... Jericho angle did exactly what they wanted it to do. It got them more mainstream publicity. They started out the episode of Dynamite that followed Double or Nothing. They started that show with fan service with the the debut of Dax Harwood and Cash Wheeler, formerly known as The Revival. And then they ended the show with something that would appeal more to a casual audience. So they satisfied both um, factions of their viewership. And if, if Tyson goes on to schedule the exhibition return fight that he's now been teasing for about a month now, the eyes will just cycle back onto AEW because of his involvement there. So I, I think it's from a business standpoint, it's smart and you have to look at it in the context of the company knowing what it's doing. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's a great business move. I know you mentioned the uh, former Revival debuting. Talk about uh, AEW's tag team division as a whole. Oh man, I mean, you know, we could talk about their their tag team division forever. I think it's by far been the strongest point of AEW's first year. The revitalization of, of tag team wrestling, you know, for a while, given WWE and, and even to some extent Impact's treatment of tag team wrestling through the 2010s, you know, really the, the only place in the world where good, watchable, incredible tag team wrestling was going on was in New Japan and in Ring of Honor. Those were the promotions that were kind of keeping the idea of tag team wrestling alive. And now you've had AEW establish this contingent of some of the best tag team wrestlers in the world, whether it be, you know, obviously the Young Bucks and the Lucha Brothers. I actually think that the pairing of Kenny Omega and, and Hangman Adam Page has been quite fun. You know, we've seen Cody and Dustin tag, but, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting a lot of the, the obvious ones off the top of my head. You know, Butcher and the Blades, a fun one who I really like. Who are some of the tag teams that you've been impressed with in AEW? Well, I, I know you mentioned them already, but definitely Hangman and, and Kenny Omega has been a really fun team to see and just kind of their growth. I'm glad to see Hangman back and them able to, to hopefully defend the titles more after this pandemic slows down. But I've really enjoyed watching those two. I think they've gelled really well together. The Young Bucks, I hadn't really seen much of prior to AEW since uh, a run they had in TNA years ago. But um. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just been, it's just been super fun. It's nice knowing that you'll be able to tune into a wrestling show every Wednesday and that you're going to see a, a good tag match and that it could come from, you know, absolutely out of nowhere. One of my favorite mat- tag team matches from AEW's short history was uh, the six man that SCU had with uh, the Stronghearts in the first Double or Nothing pay per view. Mm-hmm. You know, Strong Stronghearts isn't even full time signed AEW. You know they're I believe they're out of Dragon Gate. So you know that was a fun match. The best friends, the addition of Orange Cassidy mm-hmm. to the best friends contingent has made 
uh, Trent and sexy Chucky e. T, you know, one of the, one of the more enjoyable pairings to see come through the curtain. So, I mean, it's just fun. And if we're talking about high impact, hard hitting wrestling with a, with a good mix of high spots and, and flippy shit, that's been, uh, the, the AEW tag team division has been where it's at. And I'm, I'm very interested to see where they evolve from here. I would not be surprised if AEW eventually created some sort of six-man belt to complement the tag belts they already have. But, you know, all of that in due time. we got to remember AEW right now only has one weekly two-hour show, and they have pay-per-views quarterly. So they're going to have to make sure that they don't get too big for their britches in terms of how fast they're growing. Because right now, AEW is kind of already on the verge of having too much talent for the time that they have to utilize them weekly. You know, reportedly, there's supposed to be a third hour of weekly television coming for AEW sooner or later, but we don't know how the pandemic might affect that. So, but yeah, tag team division, easily the highlight of what this company has done in the first year. Yeah, I'm with you. I think uh, now that I've thought about it a little more, I think about the tag team tournament they had last year and the the upset by a private party over Young Bucks. Private party, another team I'm really impressed with. And that was kind of a shock right out of the gate. They're a blast, yeah. There's so many guys. I'm really excited for TH2 to be back on the show. You watch Being the Elite, you know, they've been doing self-taped vignette sort of deals. But I, I mean, I can't wait to their backs. They're tremendous athletes. Another person who's really broke out yeah. since a heel turn and, and had an unfortunate injury here recently is uh, Britt Baker. I've really enjoyed her character work since the heel turn and hoping they're going to keep her on TV in some form or fashion. Think back to years ago when Randy Orton was injured and they kept him on TV and uh, was kind of some news type updates on his shoulder injury. But I think they could do sure. some similar type things with her. And uh, what are your thoughts on Britt Baker? I think Britt's evolution over the past, you know, not only since her time in, in AEW, but also just not a lot of people realize how early she is in her wrestling career. Straight out of college, you know, she was training to be a professional wrestler uh, while simultaneously getting her doctorate or dental degree. So yeah, Britt Baker is, you know, in the ring, you know, you can still see a little bit of greenness in moments with her. But I think that her in-ring work has been especially serviceable. She has had one or two matches that I've in AEW that I really enjoyed. I thought the match that she had with Hikaru Shida during the uh, tapings that AEW did at the Nightmare Factory in, in Atlanta or in Norcross, which is an Atlanta suburb. That match was tremendous before the happy accident of Britt getting mm-hmm. her nose busted open happened. I mean, it was already a great match. And then you had that moment on top of it with Chris Jericho's commentary. That was a real uh, coming of age match for Britt Baker that really accelerated her creation of her heel persona. And I think it's been a, a really smart to pair her with Tony Schiavone, who is obviously a pro, who's worked with a lot of talents in AEW so far, who can help keep them on track if they ever get lost. I, I'll admit, I was worried. I was worried about you know the night that Britt originally flipped the switch to kind of start this heel persona. You know, that was on the top of the Norwegian cruise liner on the AEW episode that they taped on Jericho's wrestling cruise, and. I didn't really think that was the best environment for her to start that persona. It was very windy. Uh, you could barely hear anybody on the mic, let alone somebody who is still in the process of learning how to do a promo. I didn't think that the Jericho Cruise moment was the best example of AEW setting up one of its young talents for success. So I was worried in that moment, but then that net, that promo that they, she did with Tony the next week, and then that the, the one especially two weeks after, I, I believe it was the promo that she cut in Austin, the chubby Whataburger Faces uh, promo. I thought that was especially strong. And, and, and once I... Once I saw that moment with her, I was like, oh yeah, I'm I'm totally all on board. This is the direction that they need to take her character. And she's really capitalized on it. And that her injury is tremendously unfortunate. 
that AEW women's division really needs star power. And she was an emerging name for them. Considering that Nyla Rose, the, the, the then champion, was off TV, you know, Britt was, was really carrying that division in terms of promo work and being on camera. So luckily, she'll only be out six to eight weeks. That's the doctor's projection. Obviously, you don't want to rush her back, but the, the sooner that they can get Britt back on AEW television, uh, the better, because she was in the middle of a run that uh, was special and could have, could have been the start of her having a big-time stake in the women's division. For sure. For me, while we're talking about uh, women's wrestling, I definitely want to discuss Impact Wrestling and their women's division. I think it's the best in wrestling right now, in my opinion. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, they definitely have, uh, they're definitely winning in terms of diversity of talent. I would definitely say that, you know, it's an interesting point to bring up because I think that that each women's division in, in terms of the American companies has their own advantages right now. I think Impact definitely has the advantage in terms of diversity of talent. I think that I think that WWE has the advantage in terms of you know having established stars and also a pipeline to create new stars regardless of whether they have a wrestling background or not. And then believe it or not, you know, I think AEW has the advantage of being so new. You know, there, there's something to be said for being so new and, and unproven that you can kind of, there, there's an advantage in, in people not having an expectation of what you're going to be or what you should do. I think that's an advantage as well. In terms of what Impact has done, you know, I know that some of the recent headlines that have come out about Tessa Blanchard have been controversial, but the, the work that Tessa has done, especially in this calendar year, her win over Sammy Callahan for the, the Impact Championship at Hard to Kill, which was in Dallas, I was sitting right there for it. I mean, that was a great match. And, you know, Tessa has really put concept of, of intergender wrestling back on the map in America. And, and you know, in, the idea of intergender wrestling, it's been successful overseas, primarily in Japan, but... Whenever it's happened here in America previously, you know, it's been framed in a distasteful angle where you know, maybe the, the, the men are allowed to gang up on the women in a, in a manner which is not appropriate for modern sensibilities. So I feel that it's, it's very smart that given that impact has someone of, of Tessa's caliber and, and ability, that the, the idea of intergender wrestling, they've, they've, they've been able to give some credibility and some attention back, back to that style. I feel like they've done a really good job with that. And now that you have uh, Moose carrying the, the old TNA heavyweight championship when Tessa finally is back on impact tapings because she, she skipped a couple because of some travel-related issues. Moose and, and Tessa, they're really good friends, and they've spent a lot of time training together. So if all of this comes down to an angle where Tessa and Moose have an intergender angle over who is the true top dog in that company, I, I, that's something that I'm going to tune in to see. I feel like it could be really good. Yeah, I've really enjoyed uh, Moose's character work recently, and I've become a bigger and bigger fan of his throughout this. I think he's done a great job with his heel persona and continuing to develop that. He's great. He's great. He came out at, at Hard to Kill, which was at the Bomb Factory in Dallas. The Bomb Factory is a concert venue and came out in this suit that kind of looked like something like uh, what Deontay Wilder would wear to the ring. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. Like, you know, he's definitely playing up that superstar athlete. I'm better than you. Person. I love when I love when stuff in the in the realm of legitimate ath athletics can translate back to professional wrestling like that I thought it, it was a small moment but I thought it was a great surprise and and I, I I definitely popped for it there in the media section I was like that's awesome regardless of what happens in this match I'm happy about that costume yeah absolutely something I've enjoyed across different companies lately there's been a lot of great wrestling tournaments going on uh you know obviously the TNT championship for AEW a title I'm really excited about and sounds like Cody's going to be defending that on a weekly basis which I think is awesome Impact Wrestling's had their uh number one contenders tournament for Tessa's title 
I know the cruiserweight title tournament in uh, NXT, um, the Intercontinental title tournament, which we've got AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan set up for the finals. I heard the, uh, based on some backstage rumors, I heard the, the Brian-AJ match that we'll be getting on SmackDown this Friday. I heard that's going to be a barn burner. Yeah, I've heard the um, same. Yes, you know, I, I think the – I like tournaments because it adds a, it adds a flair of legitimate sport to, you know, the, the pro wrestling uh, canon and pro wrestling operation, especially considering that we don't know – we, we are, we're already not going to get best of the super juniors this year in new Japan. And we don't know if G1 is going to happen on time either. So I think it's smart that, you know, a lot of the American promotions have, you know, the, the tournaments have been a way of giving reason for pro wrestling to happen while there's been no fans in attendance because pro wrestling is an, is an art form based on doing service for the fans. I the first I believe it was the first empty arena match of the pandemic. It was Alexa Bliss versus Kari Sane on SmackDown. It was the first SmackDown that was in front of an empty arena. And it was a good match. But that being the first match where there were just a bunch of empty chairs in the crowd, it did feel a little weird. And I thought to myself, okay, well, maybe in this era of wrestling without fans, I'm just going to have to deal with the fact that all of this feels really pointless. You know what I mean? Right. And the, the tournaments are a way of making sure that other than pleasing the fans, that all of the characters involved in your promotion have something to pursue. And it, it, so in terms of the form and continuing all of the characters, their through lines of action, that's, it's smart that all of these tournaments have happened in the various promotions. I know you talked about the empty arena shows and I really liked how AEW came out and they had wrestlers outside the ring and WWE's recently started doing that. I know you can criticize the fact that they've had them standing for hours on end, but um, I really liked that they finally did that because I think it makes the show seem a little bit more like normal. Well, yeah. I mean, you've especially early on in the pandemic, you've had both AEW and both both AEW and WWE approaching the pandemic from two different perspectives. The WWE perspective has been, okay, we're here to entertain you, but we are going to totally commit to the feeling of escapism, right? So during those early shows, there was no mention of the coronavirus. There was no mention of the reality that we were living in. There was no effort to give the, the performers any sort of background noise or any sort of audience to perform with. And there was also the idea that, other than, here's the caveat, other than some of the great direct-to-camera backstage promo work that they did on the road to WrestleMania, primarily the stuff that Edge and Randy Orton did. But there was this idea that, you know, we're going to have our wrestlers in the ring, on the microphone, pretending that nothing is wrong. We've taught them how to do promos for fans, so we're going to continue to have them act as if they're still talking to fans. Whereas on the AEW side, the first, the first image that we saw of the Empty Arena AEW show was Cody, the Bucks, and Kenny Omega, the Elite, coming out and addressing the situation, showing the, all of the empty seats in Daly's place, and then talking about how they felt about the whole situation, honestly, in a heartfelt moment, and then Kenny calling for the pyro to start dynamite and the lights coming on and from there on it kind of just felt like a regular show and business as usual and they didn't try to protect the fans at home from the knowledge of the virus or that they're operating under special circumstances AEW has consistently been really honest about what's going on in the world. They were even uh, willing to acknowledge the unfortunate deaths of Shad Gaspard and, and Hana Kimura even though both of those talent, you know, they, they never touched an AEW ring. 
And I know that WWE also followed suit, but you know, AEW being a new company that had no direct involvement to the, the people who unfortunately passed away, they didn't have to do that, but they did and they talked about it. And you know, it was something that was addressed. They weren't trying to shield their viewers from reality for the sake of uh, making their product come across as utopian and, and perfect and something separate from the, the pandemic circumstances that we're all living in. I mean, life is hard and, you know, AEW hasn't, hasn't shied away from the fact that, that life is hard. I really enjoyed their transparency there and their, their willingness to be honest with the fans who are watching the product. I did want to move in now to a segment called Ranky Panky. It's actually the name my wife came up with for a segment where we rank stuff. Um, <laughs> I love it. I, I love, love it. We're, we're going to uh, rank our top five wrestlers who we believe are equally as good at playing the face role as the heel role. Face being the good guy and heel being the bad guy. I want to go from five to one with this, but first of all, I did want to mention when I was going, I always come up with a few honorable mention myself. A couple guys I ended up leaving off my list, but that I think are really good at playing both roles would be uh, CM Punk and Daniel Bryan. Punk obviously had the straight edge society character back in the day, which was a heel, was also good at getting the fans behind him and flipping the script. Daniel Bryan also, you would have thought when he came back after his unfortunate early retirement uh, due to injury issues, you would have thought, how is he ever going to be a heel again? But he was able to do it with the Planets Champion stuff. So I think he's been really great at playing both roles as well. But for me, uh, my actual list Starting out at number five, I ended up going with Shawn Michaels. I think uh, you look at his lifestyle back in the 90s and stuff was pretty bad, but uh, he was able to play maybe a better heel back then because of his true life lifestyle. After his conversion to Christianity, he was more of a face for the most of the rest of his career, but still had the ability to play the heel at times. And I think he's always been great at playing both. Obviously, one of the greatest in-ring performers of all time, but I think his mic work is great for either role so I went with Shawn Michaels at number five who'd you have well before I go to my number five I'll, I'll list a couple honorable mentions okay. and I'll also make a comment on how I approach this list because of course anybody who has had any sort of longevity in the pro wrestling business has of course had to have the ability to be somewhat good at being both a face and a heel character. So really what I, how I approached my list is I found five guys that I couldn't decide whether or not I liked them better as a face or a heel. So that's kind of how I approached mine. So may, maybe some of the obvious names won't be, there's a couple obvious names on here, but some of the obvious names might not be. Sean would be one of my honorable mentions. Randy Savage, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Chris Jericho is one of my honorable mentions. You could really go on forever with the honorable mentions. I have Stone Cold as one of my honorable mentions, Undertaker, Bret Hart, Cena. You know, all of those guys were great at being both heels and faces, but they were better at one or the other, or at least they were known for one over the other. So that's why they didn't make my list. Also for honorable mentions, I felt obligated to put Fritz Von Erich on the list, the, the first generation Von Erich. Um, uh, I've done extensive writing about the Von Erich in the past being a journalist that covers pro wrestling in Dallas and sure while Fritz in, you know during the early days of his career was a very controversial German bomber style character later in his career when he turned face and was wrestling with his sons in world-class championship wrestling you know he was universally beloved by folks here in Dallas and you know the, the Von Erichs could do no wrong so for um, personal reasons based on the writing that I've done I've also put Fritz on this list but uh, my number five would be CM Punk I juggled leaving him off the list for a while but really from the point of view of not knowing which punk that I liked better heel or face, you know, I thought a lot of the, the face work that he did in his ring of honor days was great. And it's, it's part of the reason why he was so uh, lovable during and such a fan favorite during his early days with the, the WWE and, and in the, the WWE version of ECW. 
And then, of course, you know, you had his heel angles with, the, you know, the Straight Edge Society and the, the 2009 feud with Jeff Hardy, which during a, a very confusing time for WWE creative, the, the 2009 angle that he did with Jeff Hardy, I thought was one of the best things that WWE did of that year. And then also some of the, the later heel stuff that he did with The Rock leading up to, uh, would it have been, yeah, it would have been WrestleMania 29, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been WrestleMania. Would have been WrestleMania twenty nine. So, um, but then of course you know you can't ignore the summer, the summer of Punk, mm-hmm. and how the, the pipe bomb. Some people would say that you know he was a tweener. I hate that term, but you know the the, the whole idea of an anti-establishment character transcending. Uh, WWE's expectations for a character being heel and then getting over so overwhelmingly with the fans, they had to change their plans. So I, I can't decide which punk I liked better, and that's why he's number five on my list. Yeah, that's a good uh, reasoning there, and some some great names I've got to say for your honorable mentions as well. All guys, I think that I also considered putting on my list for the most part. For me, moving on, number four was The Rock. If I had to choose a favorite wrestler of all time, The Rock would be mine. Just from growing up, he's the guy that I always liked. One of the greatest mic workers, if not the greatest of all time. The Rock could flip from being, say, the people's champion to being the corporate champion. His battles with Stone Cold are legendary, but The Rock, just he can do it all pretty much on the mic. Face, heel, doesn't really matter. And I guess that's a good reason. I can't really come up with what I like better, a face or a heel for The Rock. You know, I love Hollywood Rock, but also love Face Rock, who's tearing down heels. So The Rock was my number four. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to Dwayne. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, there's really not enough that can be said about The Rock, but, but I'll get to him. Um, number four on my list, I had Jake the Snake Roberts, number four on my list. I struggled with this one, too, because arguably Jake's best work always came with him being as a heel. And he's he was always a character that kind of leaned into more sinister, trash-talking tendencies. I mean, you know, he, he carried around a snake, so I, I don't think there's any question there. But Jake gets on my list because, you know, there was, a, there was a time in the late 80s during his career with WWE before his uh, harder heel turn in the early 90s where the WWE had to cancel an angle between Jake Roberts and Hulk Hogan because the crowd was cheering for Jake over over. Hogan. It's not that they weren't cheering for Hogan. It's just that WWE did not get the expected reaction whenever Jake walked through the curtain. I mean, he was a really, for as good as Jake Roberts was as a heel, he was tremendously compelling as a face. Whether it, and he just had a cool persona, you know, the the music, the fact that he's carrying a snake around in the bag, you know, his smooth talking on the mic, his finisher, you know, the DDT, which it's not tremendously revolutionary now, but it was back then. There's a really good anecdote that you can find about uh, Jake. I believe it was an old interview that he did with WWE Magazine where he explained that other wrestlers had used the DDT before, but the first time he used it, the, the DDT, Jake Roberts DDT happened on accident. He was trying to do a knee up, but the guy that he was delivering it to tripped on his shoe and they kind of fell backwards into what would become Jake Roberts DDT. So yeah, Jake was a better heel, but he was tremendously over as a face for a short time. And that's why he makes my list. Awesome. I didn't even realize that story about the first DET did so that's that's pretty interesting to hear yeah he wasn't the first but you you can find it I know it was WWE magazine I want to say 2005 or 2006 you can find it online that's the story they told and I found that really fascinating Number three for me, I went with Kurt Angle. This is a guy who coming into WWE, I know most people will say he picked up the business as fast as anyone ever has. And coming in, obviously with his wrestling background, superb in-ring former, again, one of the greatest of all time, could really play the wrestling machine type character as either a face or a heel, really. But is also, as his career went on, showed the ability to play the comedic role really well, whether as a face or a heel. And Kurt Angle was just so good at playing either role, I think. And it's funny to think about his career in WWE, his career in TNA. I mean, a Hall of Fame type career in both. Kurt Angle has done so much in the wrestling business. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, number three on my list, I put Eddie Guerrero, Latino Heat. Eddie built his entire career off of the, the lie, cheat, steal mentality, which was kind of his gimmick regardless of whether he was a face or a heel. That being said, I, I, what I find interesting about Eddie is that he was able – the mentality of his character was able to to transcend which side of the coin he was currently landed on. You know what I mean? Like his mm-hmm. WWE championship win at No Way Out against Brock Lesnar, you know, that was the moment where before the frog splash, which ended it, there was the drop or the uh, kind of like a DD tech. I forget exactly what move it was, but it was the the impact driver down onto the campus on top of the WWE championship. And I mean, technically the the hit wasn't exact. I think actually Brock's head missed the belt, but within the context of the storyline, you know, that's a face Eddie cheating to win the company's top championship. And the crowd didn't care. The crowd for Eddie's championship win, you know, that was, that was the response that you get, you know, when one of your greatest heroes finally reaches the mountaintop. So, even the, the the lie, cheat, steal persona applied to Eddie's face character, and he was just really good at both. Yeah, I'm going to ditto what you said about Eddie Guerrero because he is my number two. I love Latino Heat. Uh, man, I miss him so much to this day. But he was just so talented in ring, on the mic, playing either role. So I'm not going to go into much detail because I can't really say it any better than you did, but Eddie Guerrero was my number two. Cool. And uh, we're, we're flip-flopping here. Number two was, was Kurt Angle for me. Kurt is you, – you saw the reaction that Kurt got for, from his retirement match at WrestleMania 35. Even though he had the wrong opponent, it should have been – in my opinion, it should have been somebody besides Baron Corbin. Not, not a knock on Baron Corbin. Just, you know and, – and there are people who have debated – whether Kurt had any say in it. I, I forget all of that reporting. But for me personally, I, I would have preferred somebody uh, than Baron Corbin. But the reaction that Kurt got for his final match was tremendous and just goes to show how beloved he was regardless of the of the character that he played, whether it was the swarmy, unlikable, I'm your Olympic hero, Kurt Angle, or the ankle-snapping, maniacal... I'm better than you, Kurt Angle, or the Jimmy Crack Corn, and I don't care, <laughs> Kurt Angle. Just incredibly, incredibly versatile. It's rare that you find somebody who can be both, if need be, diabolical and comedic at the same time. And going back to that, that idea that we talked about earlier about wrestling companies embracing the inherent silliness of the pro wrestling form. I feel like Kurt Angle personifies that incredibly well. The ability to be able to you know, act within a serious storyline and put on uh, matches that reek of legitimacy in terms of athleticism and, and impact and a hard-hitting style. Yeah, just just such a versatile talent, and I wish we could see more of him. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I spoke about Kurt Angle earlier and just how versatile he is and can't really decide whether I like the, quote, Jimmy Crack Corn character or the wrestling machine better because they're both just so, so good. For me, moving on, number one, you talked about Kurt Angle being able to be diabolical or comical. This guy is also able to do that, I think. Chris Jericho. To this day, I remain a huge fan of the guy. Love what he's done in AEW with the inner circle. But this guy is just so funny, but can also flip the script and beat up a face uh, and have his group beat up a face for him. But then I think back to the Attitude Era type stuff and him being a face himself and the things he would say to Stephanie McMahon or Triple H or the big heels of the time. And Chris Jericho has been able to reinvent himself so many times. You know, I think back to how over he got the list in WWE. Started as a heel but ended up becoming a face gimmick because it was just so over with the fans. So Chris Jericho is a guy who's always entertained me. Sure, sure. The reason why I put Chris Jericho as as an honorable mention on my list, if Chris's career would have ended with his last WWE run, I probably would have put him in this top five. 
But you mentioned the reinvention, and you know, ever since his work in New Japan and in AEW, he's really leaned into this heel persona that you know he's been arguably better at all along. Like I said, I based my list on the idea of not being able to decide which version of a character I liked better, whether it be heel or face. I can definitely say that I prefer heel Chris Jericho, especially here in his older age where he's able to, you know, switch back and forth just because of his his experience between, you know, an evil, sinister side, the whole idea of fans needing to thank him for AEW's legitimacy. And then, you know, the more comedic side, like we saw the t-shirts and the deli platter and and the Mike Tyson confrontation and, you know, the bubbly and the parking cone as the witch's hat. I mean, he's just so far heavily leaned onto that side now and for good reason because he's so good at it. So that's why he did make my list. Number one on my list is The Rock just because The Rock's ability to, uh, you know, flip back and forth between heel and face so effortlessly is easily a factor that, you know, made him the great one that we know him as today. And I think another part of the reason why I put The Rock number one is because a heel turn was so instrumental in making him a superstar. When he originally debuted as as Rocky Maivia, you know, the fan rejection was brutal. It really was. Talk about, we've talked during this podcast off and on about WWE and, and all wrestling companies really misjudging fan reactions. And The Rock's debut was one of those. Rocky Maivia did not work as a character for the fans. And then that transition into heel, into the, the nation of domination, you know, now the fans were chanting Rocky sucks, but it was completely justified. And then his eventual run with championships, his involvement with the corporation, then his long face run, which made him the most popular wrestler in the business, which many thought, you know, oh, he's never going to go heel after that. You know, that'll never happen. And then comes the Hollywood character, the Hollywood persona, which was arguably the best of his entire career, even though he was wrestling on a limited schedule at that point. So just the, the ebb and flow of The Rock's heel and face turns, everything had a purpose Everything sustained his longevity and the fans' interest in him as a wrestler. Very much the opposite of the big show in that respect, where the big show turning heel and face, you know, many of those were completely arbitrary and didn't make sense in the larger context of the wrestling product. Whereas The Rock, every time that he turned, whether it be heel or face, was perfectly executed and made sense in how they were going to continue the story, not only for him, but for everybody else involved in his storylines and just the the long-term planning. The Rock is the, for this ranky-panky that we're doing in terms of execution, uh, definitely number one in my book. Yeah, I think you've got a great list there. I know, thinking back, we both had The Rock, Kurt Angle, Eddie Guerrero on our list in different spots. So that just speaks to those guys and how talented they were and how how good they were able to play both roles. I think when thinking about my list, I thought back to longevity and maybe sometimes The Rock not being as present in recent years. But obviously, me saying he's my favorite of all time, got great respect for him. And I love the Hollywood character. And I I would agree that was probably my favorite time during The Rock's career was that character. Also happened to be probably my favorite entrance music of his career. Oh, yeah, it was. And, and you know, that's the, the Hollywood version of The Rock, you know, just based on when I was paying the most attention was probably the version of him that was most visible to me, the post, you know, 2002, 2003 era, when he was wrestling a, a limited schedule. But boy, man, those reactions that he got, even as a heel, just send chills up your spine level of heat and electricity, the, the buzzword that WWE loves, loves putting out there with anything associated with the rock the, the electricity you know what i mean so but all of that's complete that that's a fun joke because all of that's completely it's cliche but it's cliche because it's true for sure he's just such a legend race i want to thank you man for coming on the podcast i really enjoyed talking pro wrestling today and just want to thank you for taking a little time out yeah man absolutely uh, for anybody out there listening you can follow me on twitter at reese kelly g 
That's Reese, R-E-E-C-E, Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y-G, Reese Kelly G on Twitter. I have uh, a bunch of fun interacting with other pro wrestling fans on that platform. And that's also where you can get sneak peeks of writing projects that I'm doing uh, largely related to pro wrestling. And yeah, so follow me on Twitter and I'm sure we'll have some great conversations. Awesome, Reese. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. And that's it for another fantastic episode of Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. Thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Reese Kelly Graham today. An all-pro wrestling podcast today was a lot of fun, including another edition of Ranky Panky, where Reese and I ranked our top five professional wrestlers we believe are equally as good at playing the face slash good guy character as the heel slash bad guy role. My five were going five to one, Shawn Michaels, The Rock, Kurt Angle, Eddie Guerrero, and Chris Jericho. Reese's five going five to one were CM Punk, Jake the Snake Roberts, Eddie Guerrero, Kurt Angle, and The Rock. Now, Reese shared his Twitter handle with you a few moments ago. If you haven't followed me on Twitter, you can do so at SuperJMac32, or you can like Four Quarters with Josh McKinney on Facebook. Remember, the podcast is available on platforms such as Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Another great show scheduled for next week. I'll be joined by John Altador of Pro Fan Sports Podcast. He's one of three co-hosts for that show. I'll have him on and we'll discuss that podcast as well as some NFL and NBA topics. Can't wait to have John on the show. With that said, that's it for this week. Catch you on the flip side.